arguably the greatest spectacle to ever be witnessed by a worldwide audience was the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II on June 2nd, 1953. How many of you remember watching the coronation of Elizabeth II in 1953? Yeah, good job, Ethan, not you. See, I, I was going to ask that question, and I figured that nobody would raise their hand because they're like, that just, he's just making me feel old right now, so... The one-day event, the coronation, took 14 months to plan at an estimated cost of around 1.57 million pounds or well over 2 million U.S. dollars. What would cost today an astounding $57 million was spent on a one-day event. the procession route that held up to 96,000 people, street decorations, outfits, car hire, repairs to the state coach, alterations to the Queen's regalia, and of course, loos and lavatories and a spot of tea for everyone. Okay, I added the last one because it sounded so British to me, but I don't know, maybe everybody did get a spot of tea that day. Guys, it was the first coronation ceremony to be completely 100% televised as only the outside procession was aired for her parents' installation ceremony in 1937. And as such, it is estimated that nearly 277 million people were able to witness the spectacle that included all the pomp and circumstance, including a 21-foot velvet train on an ornately designed silk ceremonial dress that took eight months alone to design. Guys, you know how long I take in the morning to decide what I'm going to wear? About eight seconds. Like, that looks good, whatever. Eight months to design. Years before Queen Elizabeth II that had a noticeable lack of the same fanfare and frenzy. The coronation I'm talking about, of course, is not for a queen or even a king of a nation or an earthly kingdom, but I'm talking about the ascent of the king, of a heavenly kingdom, and a ruler of the whole universe. The scene begins, if you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 11 is where we'll be starting this morning. The scene begins to unfold Starting at verse 1, as Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Now, I've never been to Israel. I was supposed to go, but it's been canceled and been canceled again and been canceled again. And I think I might be able to go next summer. I'm really not sure. But I've heard from plenty of people who have been there that describe what it means to come up the Mount of Olives, which is about 100 or 200 feet higher than Jerusalem. And you, if you could imagine climbing all the way up that mountain, and as you come to the crest of the mountain, seeing the city of Jerusalem, it is awe-inspiring and is said to have evoked literal tears in many people who climb to that point and see that. That's where Jesus and his disciples are at. Jesus sent two of the disciples ahead, and he said, go into that village over there. As soon as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, what are you doing, just say. I, I love this, by the way. Um, if you ever try this in life, see if it works. Just, just say the Lord needs it and we'll return it soon. Like you see that really nice car and you're like, I'd like to like, drive that car. You just walk up to it and get into it. And somebody says, what are you doing, fool? Uh, well, the Lord needs it. See if you get away with that. I bet you won't. The two disciples left, and they found the colt standing in the street, tied outside the front door. As they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, what are you doing untying that colt? And they said what Jesus had told them to say, and they were permitted to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their garments over it, and he sat on it. And many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches that had cut they had cut in the fields. Jesus was in the center of the procession and the people all around him were shouting, praise God. 
Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Praise God in highest heaven. Now for all of the book of Mark to this point here in chapter 11, Jesus has been very hush-hush about his true identity. When people figured it out, he would tell them, don't tell anybody. It's kind of an odd scenario. Whenever someone identifies Jesus as Messiah, often he tells them to just keep it on the lowdown. And by the way, here in Mark 11, the issue at hand here in Mark is the issue for much of Jesus' ministry among his opponents. His supposed claim to Messiahship, to being the chosen or the anointed one, one and the same with God, God himself claiming the title Lord. And it, this, guys, is a watershed moment in the gospel of Mark and in Jesus' ministry and, and life. Very public praise that he is receiving in this moment here. This is the first and only time that Jesus allows himself to be publicly outed and, and praised and proclaimed as their king. And there is a very clear design, a divine design in this whole scene right here. Guys, this is Jesus' coronation ceremony. His accession to the throne. And in doing so, he completely flips the script on how people will see him moving forward. Now, this is called the triumphant entry in my Bible, or in some of your Bibles, it might be called the triumphal entry, but I think, and I heard a guy call it this week, it actually is really the ironic entry. Isn't it ironic that in a moment like this, in contrast to a royal ceremony in London back in 1953 that took great time and attention and detail and cost, this scene right here, this coronation ceremony is all tightly wrapped up in 11 verses. Really 10. That's it. Jesus' coronation ceremony lasts all of 10 verses. But don't be fooled, guys. One of the smallest scenes in the Bible and in the Gospel of Mark contains one of the greatest moments in all of salvation history. And what's even more ironic about this whole episode here is the way that Jesus enters Jerusalem. And Jesus is publicly declaring, or better yet, he's allowing the crowds to solidify his claim as Messiah, son of David, son of God, the Lord However, what the crowds expect of Jesus, they expect a political ruler, a savior, is contrasted by the picture that Jesus gives them as he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, a lowly beast of burden. This is an odd coronation ceremony. Jesus is making the point here that although he is what they are declaring Lord, he isn't exactly what they were expecting. His rule will be meek and gentle, servant-like, not domineering and authoritarian. Jesus will never force anything on anyone as Lord. He will make his claims, he will make his challenges, and he will leave the decision up to each individual person. And among those claims that Jesus makes, and I would argue at the pinnacle of any claim made about Jesus, was his right to bear the title Lord. The Greek word is kurios, which doesn't mean curious, it means Lord. Now the generic term Lord occurs over 600 times in the New Testament, it was often used as a term of respect or affection or kind of like we would say, sir, today, my Lord. But 150 times the word is used specifically to denote a show of submission towards God himself and 250 times in the New Testament to address or reference Jesus specifically. One prominent New Testament scholar concludes that the early church, the disciples themselves expressed their whole faith with the single word, kurios, Lord. Another scholar notes Paul's most loved name of Jesus was not Messiah, but Lord. And that the very first sentence Paul ever spoke to Jesus, he said, who are you, Lord? 
And while this word kurios could mean master or it could mean one in authority, by the time and this time here that Mark writes his gospel and he captures this whole episode, the term became synonymous with referring to God himself. And so when they recognize and they call Jesus Lord, it's much more than just a sign of respect. They are saying, you are God. Guys, this is here in this moment, clear VIP red carpet, carpet treatment. It may not seem like it to us, like a, a donkey, or like some, some coats that you just threw over a donkey and on the road and some, some palm branches or leafy branches. It's red carpet treatment fit for a ruler and a king. Now, Jesus' name is, is we, we, we translate it Jesus, but his name is Yeshua. It's what we would know as Joshua, which means God saves or God is salvation. And what the crowds are cheering here, in my Bible it says praise God, but in many of your Bibles it probably says the word Hosanna. What they are really saying there is not really Hosanna or praise God, but they are saying save now. And 500 years before this event happens, 500 years before this coronation ceremony, a prophet named Zechariah made a very startling prediction. Back in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, this is what it reads. Rejoice, O people of Zion, Jerusalem. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and he is victorious, and 500 years before Jesus shows up on a donkey, that king is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. And, and, and what of this donkey? I mean, there's a, there's a big deal made about this donkey, and like in, in, a, in 10 verses, this donkey takes up some significant real estate in 10 verses, doesn't he? You're like, it's a donkey. It's a stupid donkey. What are we talking about this for? Or, or better yet, it's not just a donkey, it's the colt of a donkey. What's the significance of a donkey that no one has ever ridden? It largely has to do with the ceremonial or unique nature of this moment. And just as at the end of Jesus' life he is buried in a tomb that no one had ever used, he will ride on a donkey that is unbroken, that has never been ridden by another person. But I think as well, too, and in a larger sense, it has something to do with Jesus coming on his own authority. His authority doesn't rest on any other authority, any other ruler, or any other king. You have to understand that in Jesus' day, when a monarch, when a king conquered a kingdom, they would publicly use or they would assume ownership of the deposed king's property, be it a horse or a donkey or clothing or, or people. It was a way of him saying, I'm in charge now. Jesus doesn't need to do that. He derives his authority from, from no one else. It is his by virtue of being given it by his father, God himself. In adding to the significance of this whole divinely staged and acted out coronation is an insight from the Mishnah. The Mishnah was a collection of Jewish oral traditions and writings. And I want you to listen what the Mishnah stated and what many Jewish people believed. It stated that Jews were expected to enter Jerusalem on foot when traveling there for special observances like the Passover, like here in Mark chapter 11. I think sometimes people will be tempted to say, like, so what? Like, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Doesn't everybody ride into Jerusalem on a donkey? No. Especially during Passover. No one rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And so this means that when Jesus entered on a donkey, it would have stood out and stuck out like a sore thumb. It would have been particularly odd and unique. It gives us another reason to see the profound and deliberate pro proclamation to be the king, the ruler, the authority, the Lord. Guys, this is obviously a lot more than just a casual donkey ride through the country and into Jerusalem. Guys, this is Jesus' coronation. 
And adding to the intrigue and the interest of this entrance to the holy city is that any Roman reader, if you were a Roman in that day and you were reading Mark's gospel of this account, or you were observing this moment as a, as a Roman, you wouldn't see this as a triumphant or a triumphal entry. The Romans had what they called a triumphal entry. If a king won a battle and in that battle he managed to kill at least 5,000 enemy soldiers, he was entitled to a triumphal or a triumphant entry. He would be brought and put in a golden chariot and he would be paraded in front of all the people. He would bring with him all the treasures that he had collected. His soldiers would march with him and he would have strung behind him the many soldiers or people that he had captured from those towns or that country. That's what a triumphal entry looked like to the Romans. And then we look here at Mark chapter 11 and what starts as a, frankly to be honest, a rather pitiful display. A few ragtag fishermen, some other disciples and followers, a bunch of peasants throwing their garments in the roads, screaming and shouting, Hosanna, save now. It would have been laughable to the Romans, who assumedly knew what a triumphant entry was all about, conquering, decimating, and at least to the tune of 5,000 lives. And guys, what starts small and anything but triumphal here in this moment has a very obvious moment of triumph soon enough. Ironically, as Jesus himself will lay down his life for the lives of every single person on this earth. In Acts chapter 3, Peter, you remember the story, he heals a crippled beggar at the temple gate who sits there every single day and is just waiting for people to give him some sort of money. And he heals this crippled beggar who had been crippled for much of his life, and naturally it results in a large crowd being drawn. And as any good preacher would notice, I have a crowd here, I'm going to get to work. And he begins to preach this very impassioned sermon about who Jesus is. And it says in Acts 4.4, upon hearing this message, I want you to listen to the line that happens here. Remember everything that I've just said about a triumphant, a triumphal entry... Acts 4, 4, but many of the people who heard Peter's message believed it, and so the number of believers now totaled about, what's that number? 5,000, not counting women and children. You remember what I said about a Roman triumphal injury, right? You get that by at least murdering and killing and decimating, ruining 5,000 lives. Jesus, in his humble entrance into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey's colt, and his brutal death just days later paved the way for 5,000 lives to be captured by him and changed forever. And guys, the beat goes on today. We're 5,000 upon 5,000 upon 5,000 lives have been transformed by this man from Galilee who is Lord. Guys, I want you to walk away very clearly with three words today, three very important words that change everything about your life. Jesus is Lord. Can you say that with me? Jesus is Lord. In Greek, Christos Kurios. Dr. Charles Carter says it well in one of his sermons. He says the fundamental premise of our Christian faith is the lordship of Jesus Christ. It stands at the heart and the core of Christianity. Everything in the Christian faith, becoming a Christian living the Christian life, and the ultimate outcome of being a Christian stands or falls on the Lordship of Christ. And then he continues. He said, let there be no question about it to whatever or to whomever we yield first allegiance and loyalty, this is our Lord. And I just want to stop there for a moment because some people will say, well, I don't want Jesus to be my Lord. You do understand about every single person on this earth, something is your Lord. 
something is controlling you. And in every other case of what's controlling you, it is manipulating you and mangling you and destroying the core of who you are. Every other thing, every other person but Jesus. He continues and he finishes by saying, in our proclamation and in our affirmation, this prime position, the prime position in all of our lives must be given to Jesus Christ. You see, guys, in the Greco-Roman world of which Jesus and his disciples were a part of, the worship of Caesar was the order of the day. Caesar was venerated as Lord over the realms he ruled, not just politically, but religiously. Two people worshipped Caesar. It was all over the empire. It was aimed at ensuring the devotion and absolute obedience of his subjects. And so I want you to picture what it would be like to confess that Jesus is Lord in a first century Greco-Roman world led by Caesar. N.T. Wright soberly observes this, to come to Rome, to come into the Roman Empire with the gospel of Jesus, to announce someone else's accession to the world's throne, therefore, was to put on a red coat and walk into a field with a potentially angry bull. It wasn't smart. You know what you're getting into and what you were getting into when you claimed Jesus as Lord in first century Palestine and the world. But here's the fascinating thing, guys. Provoke the bowl, Christians did. Not to just be punks. Not to just be showy. Not to just stick it to the man. Because there, there is no question in my mind as you read the Gospels, and you read of the life of the early church and the apostles and the letters written to the churches, the sun that is at the center of the universe and all of the New Testament, the central claim of Jesus' believers is that He and He alone rightly reigns. I wonder if in our own time we can say the same words. And not just say them, but really mean them by living them out in our lives. So Jesus, you have full control. Jesus, you are the master. Jesus, you are guiding my life in every single way. What should I do about this, Jesus? Where should I go with this, Jesus? It always goes back to Jesus. Paul continually uses this title, Lord Jesus, or Jesus is Lord, along with others like Peter and James and John, those closest to him, and in James's case, Jesus' brother, who is initially most skeptical of him. And it affirms most powerfully and explicitly, Paul says this in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. This is how he opens up his letter, this magnificent letter to the Romans. He says... He was shown, Jesus was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then listen to what he says here, this phrase, he is Jesus Christ. And he doesn't say Messiah, or he doesn't say Savior. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then Paul doubles down. He doubles down on the truth of that salvation that although we are purchased through Christ and his blood, it's made effective through our confession of Jesus' lordship. One of the greatest verses in all of the book of Romans, if not much of the New Testament, Romans chapter 10, verses 9, says this very simply. Guys, it all boils down to this right here. It is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved, that Jesus is Lord. Guys, the, the preaching of the gospel is the proclamation of Jesus as Lord. Knowing God means knowing the lordship of Jesus. If you say that you know God, but you do not submit to the lordship of Jesus, you do not know God. Guys, in fact, I would say it this way and very clearly. The most basic definition of what it means to be a Christian, to follow Christ, is one who confesses Jesus as Lord and lives that out in their life. If you ask yourself, like, oh, am I really a Christian? 
Well, I don't know. That's the best definition that I have to really test that case. Am I living under the lordship of Jesus? It's so magnificent. It's such an amazing phrase for all of the life and the history of the church. And yet, as a man by the name of H.A.A. Kennedy, and I know that he probably lived a long time ago because everybody that lived like 100 years ago only went by their initials, all right? H.A.A. Kennedy says this. The term Lord has become one of the most lifeless words in the Christian vocabulary. When the title Lord lost its reverence and its respect and its awe, it also lost its relevance. And the title was reduced to something like a spiritually meaningful religious leader. I see that's how most people, and, and frankly and sadly enough, even some Christians see Jesus today. Just a really good guy. Just a really, he's meaningful, but he's just, he's nothing more than just kind of a religious leader. Guys, it has been suggested, and I believe this to be true, that much of the sluggishness and much of the weariness in the American church is from a crisis of supremacy or lordship. We don't see Jesus for who he is. We don't appreciate Jesus for all he is. Guys, do you want more in your life with Jesus? Recover his lordship. Acknowledge him as king. Think about what that means for Jesus to be Lord of your life. Ask the Spirit to help you see Jesus for all that he is. You begin to discover a new joy that comes from above, and your life will never be the same. Guys, not just the gospel, but this concept of Jesus' lordship changes everything. Guys, Jesus is not a leader who has his authority reduced by world leaders or top thinkers of our day, telling him which areas of life he's allowed to give people advice on. See, that's much what much of the world does today. I mean, Jesus is a really good guy, but like, really, are you going to listen to him in this situation? Leaders who think they have all of the power and they don't realize that they have barely a fraction of power and authority in comparison to Jesus. Jesus is the boss of everything. Everyone's religion, everyone's politics, everyone's economics, everyone's ethics, everything. Jesus is not interested in trying to capture a big chunk of the religious market. To the contrary, guys, he is in the business of completely monopolizing everything with the glory and power of heaven. He wants it all. Make us very personal. He doesn't just want it all in a universal, like, out there since he wants it all in your life. He wants all of you all of the time. And some of you be thinking like, well, that's, that's kind of creepy, man. I don't, like, no, it's, it's the best thing that you could ever hear. It's the best thing that you could ever have in your life that you would let go and give control of God and let him lead your life in only a way that he can and knows how to. Jesus wants everything in your life. And so guys, True discipleship, true following after Jesus and being a Christian is about faithfully living out the lordship of Jesus Christ. Ordering our lives according to his teaching and his authority. But not just his teaching and his, his authority. Like, Jesus didn't come and be like, hey guys, I'm going to give you a lot of great teaching. I'm going to give you a lot of great words. I'm going to give you a lot of great ideas and like really cool sayings to give like thousands of years from now. No, what did Jesus give? He gave a life. He gave a life as a model and example of what it means to live into perfect obedience to his father, to our father. And admittedly, guys, I know it. This is a really difficult sell, isn't it? Especially in our day and age. The concept of lordship, of, of all power and all authority being invested in one individual is unthinkable to American sensibilities. No, that's unhealthy for one person to have all the power and authority. It is in our earthly sense, isn't it? It's not when it comes to the king of the universe. It's offensive to our sensibilities, but it is the boldness of the claim of the New Testament for Jesus that absolute sovereign authority and power are found only in Jesus Christ. And you know what, guys? Here's the deal. Confessing and professing that Jesus is Lord is not asking 
for the acceptance, the fact that he is God. A lot of times it will say that. Like, I, I acknowledge, God, that you are Lord. Jesus, that you are Lord. Guess what? Jesus doesn't need our acknowledgement. Because guess what? He is Lord. In spite or because of that. Jesus is asking and calling people to faithfulness and obedience and allegiance toward him. Guys, Jesus wants followers obedient, lordship understanding, and under and submitting to that followers. He doesn't want a bunch of groupies who are only there for the good things. And at the moment that something turns tough, they just run. Guys, in the end, to truly love Jesus is to love his lordship and his authority and his command over your life. And we do this, guys, by knowing that Jesus is not a bully. He is not a dictator. Jesus is Lord of all, but he is also Lord for all. Guys, any... Any unsettledness that you may have in your life, any lack of direction, any lack of purpose, is a direct result of an improper understanding or a submission to Jesus' lordship. Write that one down. Mark that one down. Underline that one. Circle it and draw a bunch of arrows to it. Why is my life not going the way that I want my life to go? You don't understand Jesus' lordship. You haven't let go of the reins. You haven't let go of controlling your life. And so, therefore, you are in a mess. You will always be in a mess until you say, I'm done. Totally surrender to you. And consequently, you will only find settledness and peace and direction and purpose by properly putting yourself under the lordship of Jesus. Guys, a correct confession and a correct understanding of Jesus as Lord changes everything. You know, I think that one of the reasons that people are so hesitant, even Christians are hesitant to heed the commands of Christ is that we are very uncomfortable taking directions and dictates from a stranger. And that's the truth of the matter. And we're very real here. For so many people, even for so many Christians, Jesus is nothing but a stranger. Guys, we may know about Jesus, we may respect Jesus, we may even like Jesus, but if we do not submit to Jesus and see him as our Lord, he will never become more than a stranger to us, and our lives will be ultimately left unchanged. Guys, why wouldn't you make Jesus and truly live as if Jesus is Lord? Because he is already that. There's no changing that truth. The only questions left are, will you recognize his lordship and will you live into and bow to that lordship in your life? We have to ask a really important question at this point, though. I'd like to sit here and talk about lordship that entire time, but like, why? why? Why is the lordship of Jesus so important for anybody's life? And guys, I think it's primarily because it is the absolute antidote to our own selfishness and those self-concerned pursuits that we tend to go for in our lives and that corrupt our hearts. Guys, I, I think that the number one question oftentimes in our life is this. Yeah, that's great and everything, but will it work? We're very practical people, aren't we? Like, we don't want to do anything if, like, no, nah, that's not going to work. Why, why spend and, and I give all of my time to that if it's not going to work. Guys, the practical lifestyle is a sickness that's eating away at our ability to lay everything before God and let him have complete control in our life. It's not bad to be practical, but to live every day and in every way with a desire for things to work out for us and work to our advantage, to always be favorable to us, we stop surrendering and we seek to take control. I was, heard a story this week of a man who went over to Romania and he was visiting with a, a, a Romanian Christian whose name was Joseph. And he asked him one question. He said, Joseph, he said, what would you say is the one thing that defines American Christianity? And he didn't even skip a beat and he said, commitment. And he said, commitment? 
He goes, yeah, he goes, you American Christians are so committed. And he goes, well, that's odd. He goes, isn't commitment like a really great thing? Like we, you, we, we use that in all of our things that we do. He goes, no, he goes, because commitment has come to replace another word. Whenever, whenever we start using one word very strongly, it always replaces another word. And do you know oftentimes what commitment replaces in our vocabulary? Surrender. And you're thinking to yourself, uh, I, don't get, I don't get where you're going, Ryan. Like, they're the same thing, aren't they? They are not the same thing. You know what commitment is? Commitment is a false pretense of surrender because in commitment, who still has control? You do. I do. I decide if I'm going to commit to that or not. And I'll commit to it, but if it is not favorable to me or it causes me pain or it causes something, then I get out of that commitment. You know, you've, you've, heard, you've used that phrase before, haven't you? Like, I just, I just need to find a way to get out of this commitment. The control rests completely with you. You know what surrender is? You have no control whatsoever. You've given up. You've given up trying in your own power in your own way. So this concept that will it work and can I still have control? If something doesn't quite suit us, then we want nothing to do with it. The mindset, guys, and the attitude takes Christ off the throne and it puts us squarely on the throne. But the gospel does not give us that kind of picture, does it? It gives us actually a wildly different picture. If you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, Jesus begins to do a lot of lordship teaching to his disciples. And starting in verse 23, he says some very familiar words. He says to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, not a groupie, but a follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it, but if you give up your life for my sake... You will save it. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but are yourself lost or destroyed? What is Jesus saying here in these very, very powerful verses? That all of us, not just in here, every person in this world has to have a willingness to lose it all. To keep following to bow under the lordship of Jesus, even when it looks like it's not paying off, even when it looks like it's not going to work, even when it looks like that it's going to be an abject failure in your life, you continue following. Why would we do that? You realize that looks very silly and foolish to the world. Why would we do that and keep following even if it doesn't benefit us only because Jesus wasn't just willing to do it, but he really lost everything for us? Christ and submit to his lordship for what he's already done. And you seek to serve him. Guys, we have to, in life, at every moment of life, lose good things to gain the most important thing. And that changes everything. Why does it change? I want, I want, I want to give you four or some implications, not four of them, a couple implications of understanding and applying Christ's lordship in your life. And the first thing is this, and we just read it here in these three verses, Luke 9, 23 through 25. To get lordship is to get a whole new identity. Guys, in following Christ, you have to, you have to die to yourself. You have to take up your cross. It's, it's crucifixion language that Jesus is using here in Luke chapter 9. You only take up your cross when you are preparing to die. Guys, this is what happens when we submit ourselves to Christ. We die to an old way of life and an old us, and we are resurrected to a newness, a new us, a new identity. And guys, until we come to Jesus and we surrender ourselves to Jesus, we don't truly know who we are. And that's why we need to lose ourselves or the version of ourselves that we think that we know to become what Christ would have us become truly 
us. He says that there at the end. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but you yourself are lost? Guys, whatever the number one allegiance of your life is, there you'll find your identity. There you'll find who you really are, which is oftentimes a version or a shadow of the real you. Becky Pippert would say it this way, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. Listen to that, guy. We, you don't truly control yourself. It's whatever is the Lord of your life that controls you. Guys, we are, we are going to, every one of us, make a God or a Lord out of something in our life. The only question is what? Who? How do you know where your allegiance or your allegiances in life lie? It's found in the word, one little word, if. If there is any if in your response to Jesus, I, you look on the other side of that, that's your God. Oh yes, God, I will... I will give you everything if it only means that you'll let me marry the man or the woman I dreams. If only. I will do this. I will follow you anywhere, Jesus, if it means that you'll bless me wildly. You get what I'm saying, right? I don't need to keep going on and on about that. Yes, Jesus, if or but. No, there are no ifs and buts. Not only to get lordship is to get a new identity, but to get lordship also, guys, is to gain a driving priority. Go all the way to the end of Luke 9, and verse 57, we'll start there. As they were walking along, Jesus and the disciples, someone said to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens to live in, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to even lay his head. And he said to another person, come follow me. And the man agreed, but, oh, you see, there it is. But, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. And Jesus told him, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Your duty is to go and preach about the kingdom of God. Another said, yes, Lord, I will follow you. But if, first let me say goodbye to my family. Jesus told him, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Guys, lordship does not mean that allegiance to Jesus is the first of your commitments, the priority in all of your commitments, but that Jesus has to be more important than anything and everything in your life. Jesus has to be the most important thing in every area of your life, not just of or over everything. Jesus is not just the number one area or priority. He takes priority in every single area and sphere and state, space of your life. Why? Why in the world would we give ourselves to Jesus' lordship? One, somebody's already, something is already controlling you in your life. You have no control, so it might as well be Jesus over any other dead-end master or source of control in this life. Two, guys, very basic here, we desperately need Jesus' lordship. Jesus doesn't need to be our lord, we need him to be our lord. He gets nothing out of lordship, but we get everything by letting go of our lives and giving ourselves completely to the master and commander of our lives. You are dying without Jesus' lordship. You are dying little deaths every single day. And ultimately, if you don't bow to Jesus' lordship, you will die in eternal death and a separation from God forever. Number three, he deserves every bit of our obedience and adoration because of the greatness of his sacrifice. Somebody has said it this way, his last breath on this earth was for you. That's a Lord that I want to obey. Number four, he is the only thing in your life, he is the only person in your life that can control you without destroying you that has only the best intentions and goodness for you. There is no false pretense or mixed motives or manipulation with Jesus. Guys, never be afraid to give your heart and your life. It belongs to him anyways. Never be afraid to give that to the one who loved you enough that he died for you. 
Because if you could sum up all of the gospel and Jesus' life as the embodiment of that gospel, it's all about, and it would be this. You know the phrase by now, don't you guys? Jesus is Lord. I want to get super, super practical with you this morning after I sit there and just railed on, don't be practical. But like, what does this look like? I want to give you four questions this morning. Please, please write them down. Ask them constantly. Ask them every single day of your life. The first one is about obeying. And the question is this. Am I willing to obey what God says in each and every area of my life, no matter what I feel about it, whether I like it or not? Will you obey? The second question has to do with submitting. If you need these questions afterwards, I will give you these questions afterwards. Submitting has to do with this. Am I willing not just to obey what God says, but am I willing to thank God for whatever happens in any area of my life, good or bad, even when I don't understand it? See, question one is sort of like entry level, isn't it? Like, I can get on board with that. Yeah, like, I can, I can obey, but submit? But even when I don't understand what you're doing, God, I will thank you for it. It's about obeying, about submitting, about relying. Third question is about relying. Is there anything in your life that you are relying on for hope and meaning more than you are God? Something that you have invested your soul and yourself into and said, this is going to be my Savior and my Lord. If it's anything besides Jesus, you have him in the wrong place. And I love this last one. This is a really, really tough question. It's all about expecting. Are there problems and limitations in your life that you think are too big for God to remove? Oh, no, my life, that's, God, God could never take care. Guys, I am convinced this last question really trips us up every time as it has to do with lordship. Like, are we really expecting big things from God? Big moments from God. Big salvation moments from God. John Newton wrote a hymn years ago, and he has in it everything about this concept of expecting. He says, thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. I defy you. I I challenge you, find something in your life, find a question that you ask God that it's too big for him. You will never, ever do it. You will never even come close to it. We should be showing up before God every single day in our lives, carrying with us large petitions. God, this is a big ask. And God says, that's all right. I can handle it. Those four questions let you know where are you on the lordship scale in your life. Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of the famous missionary Jim Elliot, who gave his life and was martyred for spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, tells a story that she uses to illustrate lordship. And it, simply, I've titled The Beggar and the Bull. And the story goes this way, that a king one day decided that he was going to come out of his palace and he was going to ride on horse amongst his people and to kind of meet his people. And in the course of doing that, he came across a beggar who was sitting on the street who had a bowl with just some invaluable copper coins in it. And the king came up to him and said, if you would just give me your coins, I will give you something in return. If you give me everything, I'll give you even more. To which the beggar thought to himself, well, this is, like, this is the king. Like, what? Is he really going to give me everything? And so in his mind and thought process, in a split second, he decided not to give him everything, but he handed over two of the copper coins. And in exchange, the king gave him two very large diamonds. (laughs) To which the beggar thought, well, I just messed that up, didn't I? Why didn't I give him everything? Because the same thing is true of our life. Are we not in this life, in the truest sense of the word, beggars? Poor, 
and wretched and miserable beggars who are just sitting there with nothing but a bowl of copper coins, of things that seem absolutely non-valuable. And Jesus will come to each one of us in our lives. And he'll come to us several times in our lives and he'll say, if you would just give me all of that, I will give you so much more. And for some reason, we cannot let go of everything and so we only give him something. And then we're left to ask the question over and over again and some people will be left to ask the question eternally and forevermore, why didn't I just give him everything? Guys, be not mistaken that although Jesus may not be the loudest part of your life, he will not force himself on you. He will not barge into your life. He is always the Lord of your life. He is Lord of all. As one preacher verbalized it, for him, for Jesus, to be the Prince of Peace in our lives and the Lord of our lives, a coronation service must take place. And so that's what I challenge you with this morning. Every single person in this room this morning, I believe, in some sense, needs to decide, do I need to have a coronation service for Jesus? Either you are someone in here who has never heard the gospel of Jesus, you've never accepted the gospel of Jesus, you've never given your life to the gospel of Jesus and to Jesus himself, you've never submitted your life and you've never come to him to be baptized and to be renewed and pulled back into new life, then maybe today's your day to, in that sense, say it's time for me to give Jesus a coronation ceremony in my life. And for all the rest of us who have accepted Jesus as our Savior, maybe we haven't really truly accepted Jesus as our Lord. And we too need to give Jesus a coronation ceremony in our life because here's the fact of the matter. He is do it. He deserves every bit of it. And so this morning as the band comes back up here and they... Lead us in worship a little bit more this morning. I want you to seriously, seriously consider that. If there is an area or there are areas of your life that you need to lay before Jesus and let him be, Lord, would you pray with me? Lord, I so urgently and I so desperately pray that this morning. I should pray that first and foremost for my life, Lord, that every day, today, Lord, you would have me consider in my life the areas that I'm not allowing you to be, Lord. And I pray for all of us in this room, all of those who are watching, for every person in this world, that they would come to understand what it means to make you, Lord. And this morning we would not leave here. If there are some ones, there are some ones who need to lay their lives before you. And may, like, maybe we don't understand exactly what that means, but at least we would take the first steps to understanding what it means to lose control of our lives, to give you the King, the Lord, our lives. And we come this morning before you, all of your majesty, all of your grace, and all of your splendor, all of your lordship and we would bow and submit ourselves to you because Jesus you are Lord Amen